Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Dr. Michael Cheatham. Dr. Cheatham is a trauma surgeon at Orlando Regional Medical Center, and he joins me on the podcast to discuss the response that was required to take care of the victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting that took place on June 12th of this year. This was an extraordinary conversation. This is the very definition of a team functioning at the highest possible level under the most extreme and dire circumstances. Orlando Regional Medical Center received the vast majority of the wounded victims from the shooting. The entire hospital was placed under the most intense strain you could imagine in trying to take care of these patients. And it's a real shining example of what happens when an entire team, an entire organization, and a large group of people really pull together under an urgent circumstance to deal with taking the best possible care of people. It even extended to the patients themselves and the way that they were able to help the team do the best that they could to take care of not just themselves, but also to help take care of the people around them. As I said, this is a truly extraordinary conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. It's sobering. It's hard to hear sometimes. It's sad, but it's also really uplifting. So without further ado, Dr. Michael Cheatham. Dr. Cheatham, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This is a day that I'm sure the entire country, people around the world are never going to forget. Obviously, you don't start a day thinking that it's going to become a touchstone really for humanity. But how do you as a surgeon and as someone who's a leader in your medical community, what sort of steps do, do you take when you're in training as a trauma surgeon, when you're building your organization to say, we need to be prepared just in case we ever have something like this happen. We'll start at the preparation phase. How do we even think about something like this and conceptualize any semblance of being ready? Well, you start by having a plan. You, this is not uh, the type of event that you can just uh, enter into and have any chance of success unless you have planned ahead. Uh, you can never plan for disasters. Each one is uniquely different. But by doing some planning as to how you're going to handle some key aspects of a disaster, that helps you to uh, address each unique aspect uh, and be successful. But you have to have a plan. And out of this event, we've been amazed at the number of hospitals around the country, including many trauma centers that have come to us and have said, you know, we don't have a disaster plan. Would you help us develop one? And then as you kind of go forward in the months preceding this, was there ever opportunities for your institution to do disaster drills or preparatory drills or anything like that that helped you lay in some sort of infrastructure to respond to a mass casualty event? We have a variety of drills that we do on a regular basis. We have weekly uh, trauma drills where we train our trauma team to respond to various uh, scenarios. We have monthly drills with uh, our emergency medical services and fire departments in the area where it's telemedicine. We, we go out to a scene with them. We film uh, a patient being injured so that the hospital uh, teams can see that. We bring the patient to the hospital, and then we actually telemedicine back to uh, the firehouses so that they can see what goes on in the trauma bay. So we do that once uh, a month. And then we have uh, annual drills 
with our community providers, the, the last drill that we did in March was actually an active shooter scenario. Uh, and so that all of that training is essential. So then take us back to June 12th. You're in the hospital. Who's sort of, who's on your team that day? Who's there ready to work? What does that crew look like? Folks that you've worked with for a long time that you've drilled with, who's sort of there and, and what does that sort of tempo of the evening feel like before everything started? Well, I was not the trauma surgeon on call that night. One of my partners was Chad Smith, but uh, Chad would tell you that uh, it had been a fairly busy night. We, we typically admit 20 to 30 patients a night on call, and it was Chad, uh, a senior resident and uh, a junior resident and two interns uh, who were the trauma team that evening. And so they had had a busy night, uh, and then uh, at, at 2 o'clock in the morning, they received the first page that there was a gunshot wound victim arriving. And what else makes up your, your response team and the sort of emergency resuscitation team? Aside from the physicians that are there, the trauma nurses that are there, who else kind of comes together when you need to do the, you know, the crash resuscitations and the, the response to something like this? Well, if you come to ORMC as a trauma alert, as we call it, you're going to be met by about 15 to 20 different individuals, trauma surgeons, trauma nurses, respiratory therapists radiology techs, uh, ED techs, chaplains, uh, and then obviously we have radiologists, uh, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, and the like that we can call in as well. But it's a very large team that rolls out whenever a trauma alert arrives. And that's the team that will drill together and prepare together and kind of choreograph moving around a patient who's been injured. Absolutely. So when the first victim started to arrive, when did the sort of light bulb in a way go off that says this is not normal? This is not the, the usual sort of thing that we expect to see at two in the morning that we need to gear up for something totally outside of the usual standard experience. Well, we had received a phone call right around 2 a.m. before the first patient arrived that there was an active shooter scenario, uh, an active shooter incident uh, a couple of blocks away from the hospital. And so the emergency department was immediately put on lockdown because of the proximity of the event. Uh, and then the first patient uh, arrived, a gentleman who had been shot in the abdomen. Uh, and it was just like any other night. You know, we typically see four to six gunshot wounds a night on a, a busy weekend. But then another patient arrived and another one and another one. And uh, they started arriving at about one per minute. Uh, the next three that came in after the first patient all had multiple gunshot wounds to the chest, uh, and they received uh, emergency department thoracotomies. At that point, Chad realized that uh, things were getting busier than usual, uh, and then the word came down that there were 20 victims coming, and that's when he picked up the phone at about 12, or excuse me, 2.10, and uh, called both me and uh, another one of my partners, because he knew we lived the closest to the trauma uh, center. And he basically, the entire phone call probably lasted seven seconds. You're right. And he basically said, I, he said, I have 20 gunshot wounds coming in. I need you. And my response to him was, I'm on the way. And I said, Chad, call everyone. Hung up the phone and immediately headed for the car. Interestingly, the nursing staff actually knew that something was going on before we did. 
because they heard an enormous number of sirens uh, passing by the emergency room and driving the three blocks down to the Pulse nightclub, which was atypical for, for a Sunday morning. Uh, and at that point, one of our ED nurses actually got a text from her husband who works for the fire department saying, you're getting multiple injuries. Uh, so it, it, everything happened all at one time, but that, that's how it unfolded. So you mentioned that the hospital is three blocks away from the Pulse nightclub. Were the patients arriving ambulatory? Were they being carried in by friends? Were they coming by vehicle? How were they getting to the emergency department? All of the above. Some victims were actually carried the three blocks, and you may have seen some of that on, on the news. Others, uh, the, first, the first group of patients that came, over 50% of our victims actually were brought by a police truck or police car. There is one uh, Orlando police officer who had a pickup truck, and he literally would transport three or four patients at a time, rush them the three blocks up to the trauma center, drop them off, and immediately go back to the next load. When the patients are arriving in this sort of a manner, I mean, we're, we're sort of used to people arriving. They've been pre-resuscitated. They may have gotten an IV place. Their fluid's running. This is, th this is the sort of crash scenario that you only really ever see in a movie. When, they, when that sort of starts, what, what was the team doing? Just sort of look at each other, sort of take a deep breath and say, let's get our gloves on and get to work. How, how do you tool up to respond to something like that? Well, you're right. We really had no warning. Uh, many of the victims came with uh, T-shirts or something like that stuffed in wounds. A couple came with tourniquets that had been placed by police officers uh, at the scene, but we certainly did not get the usual warning from uh, the fire crews or ambulance uh, teams uh, of what they were bringing. The patient simply arrived. The, the team, as we do pretty much any night, you just roll up your sleeves uh, put on uh, gloves and, and protective gear, and, and you start taking care of the patients. And it was uh, basically uh, a very controlled situation. It was noisier than usual, obviously. Uh, we completely filled the trauma bay. We had patients out in the hallway, uh, but everybody pitched in and uh, got the job done. So It's amazing that you, one of the first adjectives that you used to describe this is that it was a controlled situation. To me, that's amazing that you would be able to, that your crew would be able to maintain a sense of control. Where does that come from? I mean, you're in the most extreme and exquisite emergency situation, and yet there's a sensation that we can control this and we can manage. Where does that come from? I think it comes from practice. Yeah. It comes from dreaming, and it comes just from experience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we take care of 5,000 trauma alerts a year. A busy night for us. Uh, is obviously different than what it might be for other hospitals. Uh, have we ever had 44 victims come in in, in a space of, you know, an hour? Uh, no, we have not. Uh, but have we had a dozen victims come in? Sure. Uh, and so the the team basically uh, ramped up to to meet the need. Uh, we've got a fantastic team. People were doing uh, jobs uh, that were outside their normal job description, but they recognized that it needed to get done. The other thing that we were able to do that kept things somewhat controlled was we actually brought in our operating room teams from our two sister hospitals that are on the same campus. Uh, we have a children's hospital and we have a women's hospital uh, alongside uh, ORMC. It's on the same campus. And so we were able to leverage all of their uh, manpower 
bring them over to ORMC and rapidly escalate our staff uh, in order to increase capacity and meet the need. And then the other sort of ancillary teams, the other the support teams that, you know, it's not the sexy stuff, but it's the essential stuff, the, the getting blood from the blood bank, getting equipment up, getting enough sterile clamps brought in. Is that all part of the choreography that making sure equipment's being delivered, rooms are being cleaned, things are moving so that the machine doesn't break down? So that was, that was essential. And what we did, I went to the operating room as soon as I arrived, uh, about 12, 2.35 or so. As soon as I had finished uh, two, two trauma cases, I recognized that what we really needed to do was get our, uh, our incident command up and running. So I dropped out of the operating room as additional partners came in uh, so that we now had a trauma surgeon for each room. And I immediately then went and found our, our chief operating officer. Uh, and together we went ahead and, and got our instant command structure up and running. And what that, what that allowed us to do, that command post, if you will, uh, allowed us to make sure that the hospital was able to keep running. And as you say, when the trauma bay ran short of chest tubes and chest tube trays, it was simply a call from Chad to me on the radio, and I was able to turn to our logistics person who was in the seat next to me in, in the command center and said, hey, we need more chest tubes and trays. And literally within five minutes, somebody from uh, you know Central Supply was rushing additional chest tubes and trays down there. You have to have that, that overview, that command post, to be able to make sure that as people found a need, we were able to fill it. I, th I think that there's an overlay to that as well, where it's not, you know, you have the command post, but you clearly have an employee hospital system where everyone knows that they have skin in the game so that when a call goes down to central supply, we need chest tubes. It's not, we need chest tubes when it's convenient. It's stop what you're doing, bring us chest tubes because you're part of this and we can't function without you. Is that something that you as a, as a team actively sort of try to inculcate into everyone that's going to play a role? You know, we, we pride ourselves on uh, the multidisciplinary approach to patient care uh, that, that we have. And uh, it's a team effort. Everybody uh, is willing to pitch in and go the extra yard for the patient. And actually, the, the additional chest tubes and chest tube trays that, that got brought to ORMC uh, from the Children's Hospital, from Arnold Palmer Hospital, uh, were actually brought over by our president of the corporation and our chief operating officer. They heard of the need and went over there personally to pick up those supplies and bring them over. So everybody pitches in no matter what their, their status in the hospital. So I want to pivot a little bit and get your perspective on the complexity and the scope of the trauma that you were seeing. An AR-15 assault rifle is not a standard weapon that people would carry unless their purpose is to try to kill somebody. And it obviously, it's an assault weapon, and so it's going to fire um, a heavy bullet, and it's going to shoot it really fast. I would imagine that you were seeing wounds of complexity and damage that isn't the usual thing. So your response, did it need to be a little bit different, or is it the same kind of approach, and is it the same way that you kind of keep help people keep their cool when they're seeing human bodies that have been damaged in a way that they've never conceived of? It was definitely different. Uh, we see AR-15 and AK-47 wounds regrettably with increasing frequency, but not to this magnitude. Among those that died in the club, 
We've met with the medical examiner, and the average number of gunshot wounds was somewhere between four and five per victim. A third of those victims had gunshot wounds to the head. When we looked at the nine victims who died upon arrival here at ORMC, none of those were felt by the medical examiner to have been survivable because most of them had multiple gunshot wounds to the torso. The devastation was just incredible. And as you say, these weapons, uh, they're, they're not meant to cause small holes. They're just as the ED thoracotomies were done, you know, Chad Smith would tell you that, that just the devastation inside these patients' bodies was incredible. Was it hard to help people stay focused when they're seeing things like this? I remember in medical school, I saw all sorts of trauma and there would be certain levels where at some point I knew my eyes were going wide and that I had to kind of take a deep breath and and settle myself because I was seeing things that you're not supposed to see. Were there moments where you, the rest of the team, had to kind of just brace yourself because you're seeing things that you're not supposed to see, that this isn't supposed to happen to another human being? Well, this is not the kind of event that we ever expected to occur in Orlando, let alone three blocks away from the hospital. You, you know, this is this is something that happens in the big city, you know, if you will. <laughs> yeah. You know, the just I think we were all in disbelief. We we would look at these these patients and and just be amazed at the devastation. But we were receiving a victim every minute for the first forty two minutes, and you didn't have time to really think. You know, you would. Uh, get a patient, you would figure out whether they were about to die or not. If they were, get them to the operating room. If not, we could move them to a different part of the emergency department uh, and and focus on the next one that was rolling in behind you. Uh, You really didn't have time to think about it until later in the morning. And, And honestly, that was something that some of us didn't really have time to even contemplate for several days. The other piece to that that I remember thinking about even that that first morning when I was reading the headlines was helping the people who were not critically wounded. So when they're when you're triaging people that they're going to have to wait a little bit, but they still suffered a horrible traumatic injury was pain management was just helping these people not have to suffer while they're sitting there with a shattered humerus or a bullet in their abdomen to not suffer. Was there a way that you were able to approach that to provide some level of support to keep them calm, help them know that they're going to be okay amidst all of that sort of chaos? Well, our chaplains uh, are phenomenal. Uh, They are uh, right there next to us in the trauma bay for every trauma alert. Uh, They did a phenomenal job uh, that morning. Uh, They had additional chaplains who got called in. We had 417 team members that responded to the mass casualty page and came in even though they weren't on duty to help with the response. Uh, so the chaplains, the nurses, uh, the techs, uh, all wonderful. We had administrators all coming in. Uh, you know, the chief financial officer of the hospital, I vividly uh, have an image that burned into my mind of her sitting on the floor with a, a mother who had collapsed, uh, you know, hugging her and comforting her when she learned that one of her children had, had died. Uh, everyone pitched in to help the victims. Interestingly, the very first victim who arrived with a gunshot wound to the abdomen was actually one of the last to go to the operating room. 
uh, simply because he was hemodynamically stable. And wow. we would tee up to get ready to go upstairs, and somebody sicker would come in, and he would get bumped. Uh, and we'd have to take that patient up. And then, you know, we'd say, okay, now we can get him upstairs. And uh, then another one would come in. So he actually didn't go to the operating room for several hours during that time. Uh, obviously, we were we were attempting to comfort him and explain why and uh, and provide him with pain medication as he waited. When the team was having to circle back to this person and say, we're not going yet, okay, we're going, and then we're not, that must have become surreal. It must have been bizarre beyond anything to have to keep telling this person, they're like, oh, okay, whenever you're ready, just let me know. How, how did that sort of work? I, I don't mean to laugh, but it's it's sort of a darkly humorous thing that that, that sort of kept happening. Well, you're right. It, it You wouldn't normally expect that. Normally, with a gunshot wound to the abdomen, uh, you know, I make one phone call, and within minutes, I'm upstairs in the operating room. Right. Um, th- this is just, uh, again, it was it was the the entire event was just so unbelievable. Uh, and he was very good natured and he understood, uh, you know, everybody uh, really kind of recognized the, the gravity of the situation. Uh, this was just something outside the norm for all that were involved. I remember in the aftermath of all of this, the, the message that was pretty clear, even though it was, it was sort of the subtext was this idea of everybody pulling together. As you mentioned, the police officer who's driving people in his truck to everyone on the team responding to even this person who's been shot in the abdomen saying, okay, I understand. I'm going to wait. This idea that everybody almost instinctively pulls together, even people that hadn't drilled alongside you. Was that something that you felt in the moment? Is it something that you've reflected on? afterwards you know disasters such as this bring out the best in mankind it's usually the worst that brings them about but then it then brings the best out uh, we've had the opportunity over the years to experience a number of hurricanes here in central florida several of those have just caused severe damage to communities and and people's lives and what we've seen after each of those is you know everyone just pitches in to help out each other. Uh, and this was just another example of that. When, when people are faced with adversity, uh, it really has a tendency to bring out the best in everyone. As the, the sun came up, I remember when I was an intern in the ICU and it was busy and stressful and difficult, they just said, once the sun comes up, we're gonna be okay. You know, the residents would always say that and we would help everyone kind of relax. As the sun started to come up on the morning of the 13th, where were you? You're, you're four hours after the first victim arrived. Where was the team? Where was the hospital? What was happening with the patients as this process sort of moved into the, from the receiving phase to the active treatment and resuscitation phase? Well, miraculously, by seven o'clock in the morning, the emergency department was eerily quiet. There was only one victim left in the emergency room at that point. Uh, all the others had either been moved to the operating room or had been moved upstairs uh, to the ICU or to uh, a ward. So you had cleared uh, 43 was, victims out of the ED in four hours? Five hours, yeah. That is yeah. unbelievable. At that point, I was, I was still working in uh, instant command in our command post. All the trauma surgeons kind of largely had finished the operations by that point. 
And so the trauma teams uh, kind of assembled in the emergency department, took a deep breath, and then basically said, okay, we need to go back and look at every single victim and start from scratch. And so they divided up the list. We, we had you know, a number of people to look at, but each victim had to be re-examined. All of their labs and films reviewed, lacerations uh, and the like repaired, procedures done, uh, and, and decide that, you know, what else they needed, decide whether they needed a consultation with various specialists, as well as uh, make plans for the day. Because we continued to operate uh, on victims. We did 29 operations on the victims that first day. That's in addition to, I think we did a, a dozen elective cases that day uh, that had already been scheduled. You didn't uh, cancel the elective schedule? No. <laughs> oh, my no, gosh. The, we didn't, uh, we didn't need to. We actually, we were back open for business taking trauma in at about 9.30 that morning. We, we probably could have started earlier, but EMS basically, uh, you know, we, we kind of had to call them up and say, no, really, seriously, we're ready to start taking trauma again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so we actually we had a motorcycle crash come in at 9.30 and it was, it was back to business as usual. As you moved into that phase now where you're, you know, you've successfully resuscitated, those that could be resuscitated and kind of moving into that next day. Is that when family, friends, media, is that when that pressure to address those needs, is that when that sort of really kicked up? Yeah, exactly. And that was actually probably harder to deal with than having an emergency department full of gunshot wounds, to hmm. be totally honest. Was there a way that you were able to come up with in that moment to help family members, friends who are trying to find someone that they knew was in the club to help direct them along that kind of that step-by-step -step process of identification, location, and helping them understand what happened to their, to their loved one. You know, we, uh, we really were not overwhelmed by the number of patients. We were able to handle those. We, we ramped up uh, our, capacity. We brought in extra staff. What overwhelmed us, in all honesty, was the number of family and friends. Uh, in all of our planning, we had assumed that we would have to deal with the family and friends of our patients, uh, which in this case numbered a couple of hundred. What we had not planned on was being the source of all uh, care and comfort to all of the victims. So there were still 40 people that were uh, unfortunately lying dead on the floor of the Pulse nightclub for the first 24 hours after the injury or the event. And so we had not only the family and friends of our victims, but we also had the family and friends uh, of those 40 uh, deceased victims who had been told by law enforcement and media to come to ORMC uh, and that we would, we would help them. And of course, nobody knew who was alive and who was dead initially. So um, we really had to ramp up our capacity rapidly to meet the needs of, of family and friends, provide them with counseling, provide them with food, water, cell phone chargers, so that they could uh, wait to hear the news as to whether their, their son, daughter, friend uh, had died or not. Did you feel that you were able to meet that need and to meet that? That's a big ask. Were you were you able to to help them 
get the information that they needed, whether it was good or the unthinkable? We had to uh, come up with some new solutions on the fly Yeah, uh, because of the sheer numbers. All but one of the victims was identified by 2 o'clock that afternoon. Uh, we had met mid-morning with state officials, local county officials, uh, FBI, police, sheriffs, uh, at the time of the first press conference, and we had, we had said, look, we've got hundreds of family members all wanting to know what's going on. And so there was, uh, there's been this question as to whether HIPAA was, was waived by the White House. HIPAA was not waived. There is a provision in the HIPAA guidelines that in a disaster such as this, physicians can share information with family and friends uh, in order to identify patients and disseminate information on their status. So our administrators were working very actively. Uh, we gave out email addresses so that uh, family members could email us pictures to help us identify victims. Uh, and then uh, at about 2 o'clock that afternoon, Joey Ibrahim, my partner, who's, who's the medical director of the trauma center, and I, along with our hospital administration, uh, got several hundred family members together in a room. We explained what HIPAA was. We explained to them that normally we would not be sharing information uh, with large groups like this, but that in the interest of wanting to be able to disseminate information, we asked whether everyone in the room would mind if we read off the names of those we had identified and their status. There was a resounding yes uh, shouted throughout the room. People were desperate for information. So uh, it's, it has been you know, shown uh, on uh, YouTube and the like, uh, uh, there's video of Joey standing up in front of this group, reading off the names of the victims we had identified and their status. And that allowed us to be able to reunite family members and, and friends with their loved one. After going through all of these different things, each equally shocking and draining, at what point did your whole team from the surgeons to the OR techs to the technicians in the blood bank, to the custodial staff, when did everyone get to take a breath and kind of look at each other and say, oh my God, what just happened? What did we just see and how are we going to get through this? I think it varied from individual to individual. Um, some of our staff went off duty at seven and were able to get out that morning. Uh, we had counselors in the hospital starting at about six meeting with, with team members and having counseling sessions uh, with them um, as to what they had encountered and seen. Some of our team members went home later in the morning or afternoon. Uh, some of us stayed in the hospital for you know, about the first 36 hours. Some people, I think, really, it didn't. they didn't have a chance to think about what they had experienced for perhaps the first week. Because even after the first 24, 36 hours, we're now experiencing international media who were camped out at the hospital, wanting interviews, wanting to interview patients. And so in between trying to take care of patients, we were also trying to provide you know, information to the world about what had, what had occurred. And as that demand for news rose, I'm sure there was also a feeling of a response from both around the United States and from around the world. What did that response feel like from people 
emailing, texting, phone calls, whatever it may have been, did you feel that there was recognition and support? What did it feel like as people started to reach out? The support that we received was phenomenal. Uh, we were receiving uh, text messages, phone calls, emails from uh, fellow physicians uh, and like from literally around the world just telling us that they were thinking of us, praying for what was going on. We received a number of uh, banners that uh, we put up in the hospital for about the first three months after the event uh, from hospitals literally around the world showing their support. Hospitals like Loma Linda, uh, like uh, Aurora, Colorado, Boston, hospitals that have gone through similar events, and they, their staff, knowing the importance of supporting each other, had sent banners to us signed by sometimes hundreds of their employees telling us that they were thinking of us, and that was hugely helpful. Have there been, as this process went along, have there been interactions that you've had with patients that were were wounded who survived, were those interactions any different than other patients that you've helped resuscitate and gotten through their hospital course? Did it feel different in any way? Or was it, hey, we're, we're, we're here to help and let's get you through this? And just because it happened all at the same time, did it feel any different or was it the same sort of thing that you'd done and your team had done so many times before? I, I think it it does feel a little bit different. I saw one of the victims yesterday in the office. Oh my gosh. Uh, that I had morning. And of course now he's uh, he's uh, doing great and he's pretty much back to normal. And yeah, it does feel a little bit different because you you realize that you were part of uh, a mutual group that went through a tremendous trauma. You know, obviously for any of our of our trauma victims uh, it, it's a devastating uh, event, be it a gunshot wound or a stab wound or motor vehicle crash, motorcycle crash. Uh, and we, we kind of establish a kinship with them. But it, it was a little bit different uh, because of the magnitude of the event. As you've had a chance to, you know, the hospital get its feet back under it, which it sounds like you were all able to do extraordinarily quickly. Patients, as you say, recovering, getting back to their regular lives. Were there lessons that you've been able to derive from this that you've been able to distribute amongst the trauma community, the hospital community, society at large to say, look, in the event of something like this, these are steps to take and these are pitfalls to avoid? We've learned a lot. Uh, We learned that disaster drills and planning is essential. Chad Smith has uh, commented that you know, whenever he heard there was a, another disaster drill, he used to just groan and say, oh, my, not another one. Now people don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> now people realize that, that, you know, it is important without all of those drills, without the planning uh, that we've done over the last 20 years, hoping that such an event would never occur, but realizing that it probably was going to. Without all of that planning, I think we would have seen something very different. Uh, I think our mortality rate would have been significantly higher, uh, and I think there would be a lot fewer families uh, who have their loved ones back. Have you been able to start to inculcate that in other regional trauma centers, you know, level one trauma centers, and, and even smaller places that, listen, this is the most important thing that we found. This could happen, unfortunately, anywhere. This is the way to tool up. 
we, we have. We've had the opportunity to speak um, at a number of meetings. Uh, last month I was out in California actually uh, speaking at one of the California Hospital Association disaster planning meetings. We've spoken at a number of meetings uh, just within the last uh, two weeks here in Orlando. It's a popular place to have medical meetings. And so we've had the opportunity to speak and disseminate some of these, some of these teaching points, if you will, some of the lessons learned. Uh, you know, having a team that is that trains together, uh, having a disaster plan that you constantly revise and improve, making plans for families, those are some of the key lessons learned uh, that that came out of this. Uh, you know, we, we tend when we do disaster drills to say, okay, how are we going to take the patient from the street outside the emergency department and and bring them in the hospital? And then once we bring them in through the emergency room, we say, boy, that, that felt good. Everything went great. We're ready for a disaster. That's really just the beginning. And you really need to plan what you're going to do when you bring them through the doors of the emergency room into the hospital. That's where uh, most disaster planning falls apart. Uh, so there are a lot of things that we're learning. We are meeting with a number of hospitals and trauma centers around the country that have basically said, you know, we realize we don't have a plan. Can you help us with that? Uh, and so we've kind of realized that that is probably going to be our mission for the next couple of years is giving back to our fellow uh, hospitals and trauma centers by trying to teach them what we learned from this event. And as you say, it's, you know, what, However they're going to arrive, whether they come walking in or carried in or the back of a truck or helicoptered in, when you need a trauma surgeon and you need a trauma team, there's no substitute. There's nothing else that can do that job. It's a, it's a tall order, and it's an order that trauma teams like yours and all around the United States and around the world meet on a daily basis, and it can be a, it can be a tough grind of a job, and at the same time, there's that message always that there's no substitute for the work that you do. And when someone needs you, they need you to be at your best. It's a, it's a, it's a tall responsibility to have, but it kind of, it, it provides that level of honor and nobility to the work that, that your team does and, and trauma teams all around the world do. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's a privilege, you know, to be able to, to serve the community in that way. I think what we've what we've realized, though, as we've talked with a lot of hospitals is their, their standard disaster plan is we'll just transfer the patients all to a trauma center. And I was speaking with, with a surgeon just yesterday. You know, he said the nearest trauma center to me is hours away. Mm-hmm. He said we've always wondered, you know, would we be able to get the victims to a trauma center? Uh, and so I think what we're trying to get across to people is that, yeah, if you have a trauma center, that's wonderful. But but you still need to be able to take care of, of patients. You need to be able to meet their initial needs, stabilize them. You can't just, uh, your disaster plan can't be, we'll just put them in an ambulance and, or a helicopter and transfer them out. Because uh, what if the trauma center uh, is inundated with victims? Uh, you know, here in Orlando, we did have 11 victims who went to other hospitals, some by private car, some by ambulance, because they weren't as severely injured. Uh, you know, if, if their plan had been, as it commonly is, they, they routinely send their traumas to us on any night of the week. But in this situation, I mean, we, we were very, very busy with what we had. They didn't have that opportunity. Your disaster plan 
has to include some component of being self-sufficient and being able to take care of the victims uh, that you receive. It's amazing to think that on a night where such a horrifyingly dark thing could happen that, number one, so many people were able to survive and, as you say, go back to their lives, go back to their families, but also to draw these lessons so that we can be ready and we can have even more people available to serve and to help someone when when those minutes really do count. That's important to be able to look back on something like this and know that the ripple effect is not solely negative, that the ripple effect is also extraordinarily positive. Well, I think um, we learned something from every one of these events. Uh, we learned a lot from Boston, and, and hopefully others will learn from our experience as well. One of the things that we're really excited about is, is the uh, new Stop the Bleed initiative that is being promoted uh, by the White House, by the American College of Surgeons and others to teach the community, just like we did CPR several decades ago and AEDs a decade ago, uh, is to teach the community how to stop bleeding. You know, this event occurred three blocks from our hospital. Had it occurred three miles away, 30 miles away, I think the outcome would have been very different. People at the scene were actively stopping the bleeding with the shirts off of their backs, uh, makeshift tourniquets, and they saved lives as a result. So I would encourage your audience to, to think uh, in the coming months to uh, take the Stop the Bleed course. It's, it's a 30-minute course that could save a life. I think that that's a really important message and the fact that something like that again can continue to grow out of something like this is is just extraordinary. You, your entire team, the people that, as you say, took the shirts off their backs to try to stop bleeding, everyone has done honor to the practice of medicine and to the work that we do to try to take care of the people around us, whether it's an emergency or not. I hope that everyone there takes tremendous pride in what they were able to do because it's something that we all can look back on and say in that moment, you all rose to the occasion. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.